Welcome to Fostering Hope, a program that opens a door into the world of foster care and adoption, sponsored by Foster Adopt Connect. You'll hear stories from all facets of foster care, from kids who have experienced the system firsthand, from parents who are taking on the challenges and rewards of creating forever families for foster children, and from child welfare workers and policymakers who work within the system while also working to make it better. Besides hearing important stories, you'll learn how you can help society's most vulnerable children in big ways or small. Please welcome our host, the Youth Program Supervisor at Foster Adopt Connect, Nathan Ross. Welcome to Fostering Hope. I am your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Jennifer Townsend. Hi, Jen. Hi, Nathan. How are you? I'm doing well. How are I kinda, you? I think I surprised you because usually you ask me how I'm doing, but this time I asked you, you first. Oh. Keeping it fresh. Oh, <laughs> mixing it up. <laughs> we are joined with, with Denise Goodman today. Hi, Denise. How are you? I'm great. Great today. Thank you for being with us. Uh, so this month's segments are on transracial adoption, the whole experience from the perspective of the parents, the professionals, and the young people who are adopted into transracial families. So, Denise, can you start us off talking about who you are, how do you relate to this field, what do you do? Sure. My name is Denise Goodman, and I'm a social worker. I've actually been a social worker for 41 years, which uh, means I've been around for a while. And uh, worked a number of different jobs through the years and uh, actually became a foster parent when I moved to Columbus, Ohio, and realized that, uh, you know, there was a lot more kids of color coming into care than there were foster families and uh, became kind of interested in what that phenomenon was about. So I do a lot of work now uh, consulting and training around foster care and adoption issues, and in particular, doing a lot of work around recruitment issues. Okay. Awesome. And I actually had the pleasure of seeing you present at the recent NACAC conference on targeted recruitment, which I loved. Um, I do extreme recruitment for uh, Foster Adopt Connects, we're always looking for better ways to increase our pool of potential adoptive resources. I got a lot of really great ideas from you, so thank you so much great. for that. Um, one, of the, <laughs> one of the things you talked about that I really uh, that really piqued my interest was talking about targeted recruitment of racially and ethnically diverse foster and adoptive parents. And I know um, one of the reasons why that's something that was, you know, worth discussing or some, one of the reasons it was brought to social workers' attention is, um, that there are disproportionately high numbers of, um, for instance, African American children in foster care mm-hmm. in comparison to the population and also, um, that that's not reflected in our foster and adoptive parents. Can, can you talk a little bit about that or how we might have come to this, um, uneven ratio, I guess? Yeah, sure. Actually, uh, child welfare historically has never done a very good job of serving children of color, whether they're African-American children, Native American children, Hispanic children, children of mixed racial heritage, that we never have done a really good job of doing it. And historically, uh, those communities have cared for their own. And as years went by and there was... uh, a growing need for foster care, and that came as a result of the recognition that group care was not 
really a healthy place for children to grow up, mm-hmm. and we started moving towards more community-based care, that we're, child welfare just didn't do a, a great job of reaching out to communities of color. Now, there were the exception of programs that uh, Homes for Black Children, for example, whose agencies were uh, committed exclusively to populations of African-American children, Hispanic children, and certainly the tribes uh, did work recruiting families for their own children as well. But I think when we kind of look back to how we've gotten to the place we are today, I think that communities of color have never been treated well. Uh, they've had a negative relationship with public agencies. Uh, they have not trusted the agencies because they weren't treated fairly or equitably. There are a tremendous number of broken promises. So the willingness to step forward and get involved with a public agency was hindered by this long track record of past bad experiences. But in addition, on the flip side, that the public agencies never really reached out to these communities. Uh, I think a lot of the agencies that try to recruit uh, foster and adoptive families uh, prefer to wait till people come to them. And so if an, a group of people don't feel comfortable or feel uh, nervous or threatened by approaching the agency, they're not going to come forward, and consequently their children will be left stranded either in higher levels of care um, or far away from their families. So some of the barriers that agencies have put into place has been that uh, some of the rules that have been established uh, regarding income or family structure or other things were hindrances to uh, communities of color. I also think sometimes staff add extra rules or... uh, embellish rules that make it more difficult for families to be able to come forward. We really didn't get out and beat the, beat the pavement in these communities and tell them that we want you, we need you, your children need you. In fact, many communities didn't even know the percentage or numbers of children of color that were in our care. I can give you an example of uh, working in one jurisdiction where clearly 88 to 90 percent of the children coming into care were African-American, but barely 50% of the families were African-American. Yet this particular jurisdiction was recruiting from hundreds of miles away for families and not in their own backyard where African-American families were. And so when we stopped that from happening and we said you can't recruit outside this county or the counties that touch this county, and we had to go into the neighborhoods the families clearly told us, we thought you didn't want us because you've never been here to recruit families. And what was happening is their children were going hundreds of miles away. Mm. And so the children weren't able to receive necessarily the services that they needed, be able to visit with their parents, their siblings, their extended families, and frankly, probably didn't get a regular visit from their own social worker and uh, they weren't being provided the service. And so, consequently, children of color had incredibly disparate outcomes. Not only did we have a higher percentage of children, African-American children, Native American children, Hispanic children, uh, in care than were in the general population, but the outcomes for those children were incredibly poor compared to their white 
counterparts, length of stay, level of care, the rate that they went into group care settings, the lack of permanency through adoption. So uh, just just some negative things uh, were happening in regards to that. I know recently I've been working in Oklahoma where we have 39 tribes headquartered there and, you know, anywhere between 20 to 25% of children in care are Native American children. And yet, uh, it took um, a lot of cooperation, collaboration, coordination to have the tribes and, and public and private agencies work jointly to increase the number of Native American families that would be available to care for their children. As I mentioned, this has been a historical problem. And um, as the number of children in foster care rose and rose and rose, uh, in the particularly at the late 1980s, early 1990s, that, and these children were getting stuck in care, that um, legislation was passed, the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, that basically said three things. This is a very simplistic view of this federal law, that we can't delay or deny a child's placement into a foster adoptive family based on the race, color, national origin of the child or the family. Now, the law has since been, I would say, revised or amended. It's now the Inter-Ethnic Adoption Provisions, or MEPA, as amended. And that meant, in the past, we would say, well, before we could find an adoptive family for this child, uh, we would have to search for six, eight, 12 months for a family of the same race before we would even consider a transracial placement. So needless to say, it was a controversial law on many sides. The second piece of legislation said that we couldn't delay or deny someone to become a foster adoptive parent based on their race, color, or national origin because huge barriers were put up to these families through policy, through rule, through the structure of the program, and we could not barricade them from the system anymore that these families are being encouraged to step up uh, for the children. And lastly, and this is the point, the point where targeted recruitment comes in, and that says that we must diligently recruit families that reflect the race and ethnicity of children in our care. And so we have to have a good handle on our data to know how many children in our care represent different racial and ethnic groups. We have to have a good sense of how many families we have, uh, whether they're foster families, whether they're families waiting for adopt for adoption, uh, to get a sense of are we fairly representing families and kids on the same playing field, if you will? Are, are we equal in that pursuit? And when we talk about recruiting in communities of color, it means we have to change what we've been doing. So if we keep doing what we've always done, we're going to get what we've always got. Mm-hmm. And that means that we're not going to have the families that we need for the children currently in our care. Absolutely. So, and sorry, yeah. we actually have to go to break um, soon. But when we come back, I definitely want to pick back up on this conversation. How do we start engaging um, multiracial families and caring for the kids in foster care? So when we return on Fostering Hope, we'll hear, we'll hear more from Denise Goodman.
Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I am your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Jennifer Townsend. We're talking with Denise Goodman today, who is our expert in the field of child welfare, especially in terms of transracial adoption, engaging communities of color. Denise, before break, you were talking to us about some of the long-held um, injustices that have been present for families of color and communities of color in terms of having kids reflect uh, or families reflect the children that are in care. And so we were wondering if you could talk to us about how do we, what are some specific ways that we change this conversation? How do we help families of communities of color um, engage in this conversation? How do we help social workers engage in this conversation? How do we get past perceptions? Okay. Yeah, I think that um, the first perception that we have to get beyond is that uh, the, the families in the community don't want to step up for the children. They do desperately want to step up for the children. But, again, the lack of information understanding about what foster care is and how you go about it and how you get started is a good point that we have to kind of recognize that this is our business in child welfare, but the general community, general public, doesn't understand all the details. So we start looking at communities of color that perhaps have had negative relationships with public agency or private agencies Mm -hmm. that work with the public agency, you know, I think first and foremost is we have to start building the relationship with individuals in that community that are leaders. So if we're able to go in with our data in hand and be able to say, did you know that, you know, 32% of our children in foster care are African-American, are Hispanic, are Native American or Native Alaskan, but yet only 12% of our families are, that's incredibly powerful Mm -hmm. information to people who are leaders in the community. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to go in with a sense of humbleness. Uh, We have to go to the community, not wait wait for them to come to us. Mm -hmm. I think we have to work to listen to the community leaders and tell us where we should go and who we should talk to and who are the important Uh, kind of de facto leaders that the community uh, recognizes. And being present, that you can't do a drive-by. You have to go be part of meetings in the community, part of worship services in the community, part of events that are going on in the community so that you become a fixture Mm -hmm. in that community and not just somebody who's coming in and asking for something because that's what happens. The government comes in and asks for something but doesn't reciprocate. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're able to go in and say, look, we want to keep your children in your community. We want to keep, we want to get children back to their families. And how's that going to happen when they're close to home? And we know that there are incredible strengths in this community. I know that working in Cleveland, for example, um, when we had this approach, our uh, director, several directors ago, started that conversation and went to a meeting where she had invited community stakeholders to come and recognizing that there were going to be a lot of angry people there. She knew that in advance and brought a lot of staff there to help deal with individual issues that would come up. But, you know, she invited them to come down to the building to see where children were kept until we could find a family. And when they came down and peeked into the room where, you know, babies were crying and, and, uh, Children were fussy and teenagers were depressed looking, waiting for a family. They said, look, we're going to get you families, but you have to come to our community. And we loaded up a bus and we took them around and they took us around and showed us the the strengths of the community, uh, where the families were, where the resources were that we had no idea existed. So I think 
a sincere approach to becoming engaged and doing whatever it takes. In fact, that particular director began to house some of her staff out in the community in community centers so that families wouldn't have to make the trek downtown. And right there in those community centers were all the services that those families needed. So a lot of time it may be about giving before you think about trying to get. But I think data is the point in the conversation where you start is talking about those kinds of things. And I always, you know, try to start with data too, and it's amazing to me, even with working with people in their own states or in their own jurisdictions, that they don't know, you know, how many kids are in foster care, how many left without a family last year, um, how many are placed more than 100 miles away from their homes. Mm-hmm. And when I start talking about that data, it's it really does uh, kind of turn people's heads. I mean, Right now, we're looking in the United States that since 2012, the number of children coming into foster care has grown, while the number of children exiting foster care has declined, meaning that that number is getting bigger and bigger. We're we're probably 450,000 children in foster care right now, and clearly a quarter of those children are waiting for adopted families, Mm -hmm. and so uh, we need folks to step forward, and we know that of the children waiting for families, we know probably 20 to 25% of those children are African-American. Another 20 to 22% are Hispanic. So we do have, I think, significant numbers of children of color waiting for adoptive families, and the average wait from the time their parental rights are terminated is 21 months. So they're waiting and waiting. So we have to become, I think, more proactive in terms of recruiting families uh, for adoption than being kind of passive and waiting for people to hopefully see that child's picture on a website. Mm-hmm. And you have to go out and tell the community who those kids are. Denise, do you have any examples of this being done where we're going out to the communities? I know you shared you know, the story of you going into that community, but are there examples of you know, people changing that conversation and seeing the results of doing so? I, I, one of my favorite stories is uh, from Cleveland, And uh, we had recognized that one of the hubs of the African-American community, very grassroots hubs, were the barbershops and beauty parlors. And, of course, uh, you know, that's where people come and visit and gossip and swap stories. And so we recruited, oh, I don't know, 10 or 12 beauty parlor and barbershop owners and talk to them about foster care and adoption and ask if we could place materials there and, you know, educated them enough that they could talk about foster care and adoption. And uh, they became our de facto recruiters right in their own uh, establishment. So people would come in and a lady might sit down in the chair and she'd say, I'd like a permanent today. And the beauty shop owner would say, well, I'm going to talk to you about permanency for kids and hand her a brochure and start talking about it. Uh, or the barber shop, you know, where you could take a picture of a, a young man getting his hair done by the barber, and people would come in and say, who's that picture? Is that boy in the picture with you? And he'd say, oh, that's a great young man who needs an adoptive home. Let me tell you about him. Mm-hmm. So they became the messengers for us on a very grassroots level about those children, and it was really incredibly exciting to see that happen. And that's, you know, very different than... Uh, your typical recruitment strategy was mm-hmm. being able to have those folks begin to talk about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think another one, of course, this is a, a well-known one, is a church in Texas where uh, 
a very small church, but, you know, uh, in the end, the church, you know, as a fellowship together, you know, adopted probably 60 kids between all members of the congregation and the families support each other and help each other. So faith, faith-based recruitment in communities of color is incredibly effective as well. But again, when we're going out to build those relationships, you know, we have to be willing to listen, be willing to learn, be willing to build, you know, take the time to build a relationship, to be there all the time, um, to provide information, to provide data, and not just do a drive-by recruitment where we drop off some brochures and keep going on. Absolutely. You know, and in order Denise, to get people. Sorry, yeah. we have to go to break, but when we return, I oh. do want to talk about <laughs> um, how, yeah, the perceptions of transracial adoption and how do we weigh out um, adoption for kids seeking out adoption in general versus, you know, waiting for that family to look like the child. So when we come back on Fostering Hope, we'll continue the conversation with Denise Goodman. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I am your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Jennifer Townsend. We are talking with Denise Goodman today about transracial adoption and the perspective of a parent and professional. Denise, before break, we had talked about how to engage uh, communities of color in uh, taking in children um, for whom they look like. And so I wanted to talk about when it doesn't work out. When we, are, when we have kids who are in care for multiple years and there's a family that's available that might not look like the child, how do we weigh out when we start recruiting outside of a child's um, race of origin? And that's, that's always a tough question, and I think an incredibly loaded question, if you will, that, um, you know, do we, we make a child wait longer in limbo, uh, or do we look at the families that are currently in our, our care, our system? Mm-hmm. And we really should... I think consider every family for every child anyway because a child has many needs, a unique array of needs that families have to consider when um, saying yes to adoption for a child. I think that um, particularly uh, in uh, some of the communities of color, I know that there is a lot of angst around children being adopted outside of the race or ethnicity that the child may lose their sense of self mm-hmm. or the development of their identity mm-hmm. and consequently be very concerned for the future of that child. And I know that when the Multi-Ethnic uh, Placement Act passed in 1994, the National Association of Black Social Workers was uh, very strongly opposed to that particular law and felt that it was almost racial genocide for their children. Um, and, of course, the flip side of that equation is children need to be, be someplace to grow up and to put down roots. And so I think that uh, social workers really need to be thoughtful about the pain of being in limbo and a child not having a family versus waiting and waiting and waiting for that family to come through the door. Now, from the child's perspective, I've seen situations where I remember a young boy, his name's Anthony, and he came in with his parents, and um, his parents had come to speak on a panel that night in a class that I was training, and he um, started to 
uh, kind of wiggle in his seat, and I said, Anthony, is there something you'd like to say? And he came up, and Anthony's parents are Caucasian, and Anthony is African-American. So we started talking. He's nine at this time, and I said, uh, Anthony, I said, uh, I understand you got adopted with your sister. He said, oh, yeah. He says, I'm really one of the lucky ones. A lot of kids don't get to be with their, their brothers or sisters. And I asked him, I said, well, Anthony, people are probably noticing by now that you're African-American and your parents is white or white. You know, how, how do you feel about that? And he said, uh, hey, I have a family who loves me, and that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I asked him how it felt to be adopted, he kind of, kind of winked at me, and he said, home, sweet home. So I think for kids maybe who've been waiting for a long time and anxious about what their future is going to be, the fact that there's a family who will love them um, and will care for them and can build a life with them is very important. By the same token, in talking to older kids about it, and I used to ask them all the time, again, having kids speak in training to prospective families, and I would say, you know, how would it be? You know, you're an African-American teenager, and what if I ended up being a foster parent? I'm Caucasian. And um, they said, you know, that would be okay as long as you learn to take care of me properly and respect me. Mm -hmm. So I used to always joke with them that I went out and got a big old bottle of pert shampoo so they could wash their hair every day, and they'd say, that's not going to work. I'm like, why not? And they would explain that they have different needs than I do. So I think that learning about each other is an important thing that families of children who are not racially the same as them is an important thing to work hard on, is Mm -hmm. to learn about each other. And, you know, certainly the history and the traditions. I know in working with tribes, it's ever so important that their children stay connected and learn um, the language, the music, the foods, the history of the tribe, the tradition, all those kinds of things. So I think that um, maybe we need to think, of, the families need to think about, uh, you know, are they up to the are they up to the challenge of doing this? And I wouldn't want to discourage any family, but I certainly want them to, to think about it. I know that um, for some kids, it's not a comfortable situation for them. And actually, I've seen that a lot with children who are multiracial, that perhaps they look one way but identify another way, mm-hmm. another race. And I think that becomes a little trickier and requires social workers to have, I think, pretty uh, heart-to-heart conversations with children about how they feel and where they'd be most comfortable. And I think this is where being thoughtful about the first meeting, being thoughtful about pre-placement visitation so people can get to know each other, people, parents, and children get to know each other and form a relationship and begin to understand what's important to each other is a good place to start in regards to those relationships. So I think that, um, you know, all in all, kids need families. That's, that's the number one thing. But mm-hmm. I think we can't go into building those parent-child relationships with blinders on and not recognizing what the uniqueness of the challenges may be for different families' mm-hmm. uh, constellations in regards to what their kids might be needing. So, for example, you know, having to deal with racism, mm-hmm. you, know, have, how, you know, in the community. And not only to help the child deal with it, but now... If I've accepted a child in my home who is racially different than me, I am now and forever a multiracial family. Mm-hmm. So I have to learn how to manage that. I know as a foster parent myself, taking a young girl to the store with her older sister, and we were standing at the checkout counter, and these two girls actually are biracial, uh, African-American Caucasian, and the woman behind me asked me if her father was black. 
Mm-hmm. The kids were horrified. We just looked horrified. And I looked at them, and I, I just turned to her and said, you know, I don't remember. And I winked at the girls, and that was the end of the conversation. We got in the car. They thought that was hysterical, and they loved that response. But I'm pretty sassy. Oh, you, know, you gave Jason families, the giggles. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I just think it's something that families, you know, need to be thoughtful about, and agencies need to be thoughtful about. There's so many factors. Kids definitely need to be in the family, and we want to make sure whether the child has um, been had a severe history of trauma, if the child has had been sexually victimized, mm-hmm. if the child has fetal alcohol syndrome, if the child has other racial needs, families need to be prepared to meet those child's, that child's needs throughout think, their development and lifespan. I think that's a really good point, you know, that we're not, we're not talking so much about the children who are already, like, let's say, placed in a foster home that is willing to adopt or who otherwise have a permanency resource. A lot of the conversation that we're having, especially with me, with Extreme Recruitment, looking for adoptive homes for children, we're talking about the children who don't have permanency. And when I look at my board of kids, they are predominantly older Uh African-American boys. Mm-hmm. I right. mean, I would say 75% mm-hmm. of the kids we're mm-hmm. working with now fit that pretty stringent, you know, criteria. That's yeah. what all those boys are looking for, and they don't have permanency resources. And so not only is that a demographic, but when I'm having conversations with those particular children, a lot of them, not all of them, and that's why it's so important to do a case-by-case you know, conversation, have a relationship, but a lot of them are asking to return to their communities, to be closer right. to their family, to be with a family that, you know, looks like their family or acts more like uh-huh. their family. Um, and if that's not important to them, then great, that opens the door. But if it is important to them, then right. we want to make sure that we're trying, you know, giving them what they're asking for. And, and so, Denise, right. like, in your opinion, how how do we weigh even that out? So if, you know, for myself, when I was going through foster care, my family, my adoptive family is white. And at the time, and even now, I didn't care. I wanted a family that right. wanted me. And I, more specifically, I actually didn't want a black mom because my biological mom was black. And my allegiance right. to her, I wanted someone who mm-hmm. didn't look like her mm-hmm. so that I didn't have to connect to them. So how do we... How do we weigh that out if a kid is adamant that they either do want someone that looks like them or they are adamant that they don't, but we find a family that's opposite? You know, how are we weighing that out? How are we having those discussions? Right. How are we giving them voice, but also mm-hmm. doing what we think is best? I'll say from right. my perspective, it's just part of the conversation. Yeah. So I, I, I would love to give a child everything that they want, but I also want to make sure that we're keeping an open mind to what that might mean. Right. So I've, I've definitely had kids where that's a hard, I've had, I, we have a child actually right now that feels very similar to you. And so that's what we're looking for, you know, ideally, but we're keeping it, keeping it pretty open because you never know what you're going to find. Right. Yeah. So. Right. You never know where that, where that connection mm-hmm. or who that connection is going to be for that child. But I think it is one of those things where sometimes you know, particularly working in adoption, um, and I'm, I'm going to speak to the workers, social workers at this point in time, mm-hmm. we're not really encouraging older kids about adoptions like we should. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you don't want to be adopted, do you? You know, and mm-hmm. we're not really encouraging uh, to recognize that we're talking about the rest of your life to have that safety net underneath mm-hmm. you. You know, you got to stop thinking when you're like 28 or 35 you need, always need somebody to call when something great happens you want to share in a celebration or that you're struggling yeah. with something, somebody you know that will have your back. And I think sometimes kids will say, no, I don't want that kind of family. And it's not because they're not open to a family of a different race. It's because 
they're just turned off to adoption. Mm-hmm. So we have to kind of mm-hmm. differentiate between those things, and that requires a really great relationship with the young person and a lot of conversation and to be able to differentiate. By the same token, Nathan, like you just said, some people, you know, I've had kids who say, look, I don't want to live in a house with a dad because I was sexually abused by my mother's second husband. Mm-hmm. So I want to be with two women. So I think we have to listen to kids about where they're going to feel most comfortable and be able to slide in and become a family member uh, pretty quickly. Um, and and I think particularly as kids get older and as, as teenagers, again, you know, how many more changes do I have to make? And, I'm, you know, I'm kind of going through my adolescence and my identity development and, you know, if I get to flip all over to this other community, I, I don't even know where I'd start or how I'd fit in. And so sorry, and Denise, listen very carefully. Yep, I'm sorry, we had to go to, to break. Um, so when we come back, we're going to wrap up the conversation with you and talk about action steps. How do we in the community get involved? How do we help this um, conversation right. move forward with some with some positive action? So when we return on Fostering Hope, we'll finish our conversation with Denise Goodman. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I am your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Jennifer Townsend. We've been speaking with Denise Goodman today about the transracial adoption and foster care experience and how do we engage communities of color with children of color and a bunch of different tools of the trade. And so, Denise, um, as we wrap up, can you talk to us about maybe some of the things that parents overlook when they get into taking in kids from different ethnicities and cultures Mm -hmm. and also some pointers for People in general, if I'm in the community, how do I engage in this conversation productively in a way that's going to best help kids? Well, I think, you know, for parents, um, I think the first step would be to know yourself. To know um, yourself, what your strengths are, what your limitations are in regarding to parenting children that are different from you. And it might require you to educate yourself in talking with parents who have already perhaps entered into transracial adoption. There's a tremendous number of books and websites about that that you can learn about that. But it's not only not always all, only knowing yourself, it's also knowing your extended family. Mm. You know, I had an extended fa- uh, family one time who were, they were, they adopted children, I think, from Korea and didn't realize that Grandpa, who fought in the Korean War, was really upset about it and had a hard time with it. So you have to think beyond your own household to the people that you're going to be socializing with, your neighbors, your community, your school system. And will they be accommodating to these children that will become your children? That's, That's the big thing. I think it's okay if you can't do it. We have many children of a, who aren't minority children who need adoptive families today. So I think knowing yourself and thinking about that is really important. And I think that, you know, it might be something to step up and begin to have that conversation. And I'm going to reach out to all the parents. You know, I've had African-American parents adopt white children. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had Hispanic children, parents take African-American children. So um, I think that everybody needs to think about their ability to stretch themselves to care for a child different from them, but also knowing what it means to care for that child. Kind of a quick little story. 
was having this family, and I ran into this woman in the elevator one time. I was at the building, and she's holding on, African-American woman holding on the hand of a little girl who's about four years old, and I, and she says, yep, I adopted my baby yesterday. I'm just down here to finish up some paperwork. I'm like, well, congratulations. And I looked at this child, and her hair is all stringy and greasy. I said, Miss so-and-so, did you put hair grease in that child's hair? She goes, I treat her just like my own baby. And I said, well... I'll just let you know you don't have to do that for white children, but she was so committed to treating his child just like she was one of her own. But there are some differences that we have to be aware of so that, oh, that we're taking care of our kids. Yeah, she's a wonderful, wonderful woman. Yeah. For her, she, she wanted to just take care of children, and she was a great mom, and her husband was a great dad. So it's yeah. something to be thinking about. A lot of parents haven't thought about mm-hmm. taking that step. But yeah. the best thing to do is get some information and think about it. But if it's not for your family, for your neighborhood, that's okay, too. But there are many other children. I, it's I think interesting. in regards... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just was going to note real quick, the neighborhood thing has come up. I have a close friend who was... Um, had a relationship with an African-American boy and they were considering adoption. Um, but they were from a very small town in the middle of Missouri and it ended up that he was just dead set against it. So they've maintained a long relationship. He's actually returned to his mother. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a, it was a deal breaker cause he just didn't feel comfortable yeah. in that area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not like comfortable feeling safe too, mm-hmm. true, you know, true. and we yeah. have to be recognizing, you know, unfortunately racism is still, um, alive and unfortunately well uh, mm-hmm. in our country right now. So we want our children to continue to be safe and our families to be safe as well. So it's a big decision to be thinking about. It can be the best decision you ever made, best decision you ever made for this child. But I want people to think about that and everything because I think it can be a great, but it can also be something that's uncomfortable for everyone. Mm-hmm. I think for our agency folks um, in terms of doing it, I think they have to recognize that First of all, you have to have excellent customer service for everyone that comes into your agency. Not only just your applicants, but your other clientele as well have to have people who are responsive, respectful, who are available to them. Uh, um, I I think that that's critical because if we aren't uh, doing that and people don't feel respected, it gets around the community very quickly. Tearing down barriers to families. We only have training on Wednesday nights. Well, that would be in some communities one of the big church services. Mm-hmm. So you, you've, got to, you've got to be nimble to be able to meet the needs of families. We've had situations where, oh, in this community they had bars on the windows. So we had to go to bat to get the fire marshal to approve if we had locks on the inside of the windows that they could, you know, be able to become licensed as foster parents. Uh, we've had jurisdictions who only wanted people to be foster parents if they had a high school diploma. Well, not everybody gets to finish high school and you know, because they joined the military or had to take care of other family members. So you have to tear down those barriers mm-hmm. and get the community involved because, to me, not everybody can be a foster parent, but the community can support the people who will still do it. And I think in a faith-based community, they've, they've done that where they've taken care of the families who've stepped up for their children by helping them with you need an extra bunk bed or you need a stroller or you need somebody to help the child with their homework. I think that getting involved with that community and becoming a fixture in that community and learning to be respectful in that community is incredibly important if we're going to make any headway in sharing who the children are, sharing the data as first steps, mm-hmm. and being willing to be flexible I think is a really important thing if we're going to engage people 
from communities that traditionally we have not uh, connected with in the past. I think I would also like to see stores, community businesses, mm-hmm. you know, ch- there are opportunities you see when you go into a store, families and, you know, depictions of families, mm-hmm. seeing foster families or, you know, adopted looking families who are of different races. So, that, you know, people get more used to it and accustomed to it. So that mm-hmm. if you see this in that store, you know, you see a family in real life, you, you aren't as tempted to ask some of the questions that make kids cringe or make parents, you know, their right. eyes bug out. So, mm-hmm. you know, are there other ways that the average community person could be involved in this? Yeah, I think the average uh, community person can spread the word. That's a place to start mm-hmm. would be to spread the word in regards to the need uh, for families or children from that particular community. Um, so if I'm a person that, uh, if I'd be willing to take recruitment materials out to my church and put them in all the pews so that people will see that, if I'm willing to host a little house party where somebody like Jennifer could come over and talk to my friends, family, and neighbors about uh, adoption and mm-hmm. foster care for children of color. Um, if I'm, uh, as a community person, willing to um, let you know opportunities to put uh, stories in newsletters where I work or in the clubs or church I belong to, that you can put stories about children who are waiting you know, open doors for recruiters is a great mm-hmm. way the community can help get the message out about the kids. So good. Yep, yeah, that is awesome. And this is actually a perfect place for us to wrap up. Thank you so much, Denise, for being Thank with you. us today. Your information was beautiful. Um, and I think we got a lot that we learned from this and will help in future discussions. So, again, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So you've been listening to Fostering Hope, brought to you by Foster Adopt Connect, a comprehensive regional advocacy and support center for abused and neglected children and the families caring for them. To learn how to become a foster parent or how to help vulnerable children in other ways, please visit fosteradopt.org or follow Foster Adopt Connect on Facebook and Twitter. We will continue our transracial and multiracial family discussion in other episodes um, this month, so please tune in for that. Please feel free to leave us comments, questions, concerns of how you're interested in getting involved. Until next time, and this has been Fostering Hope. <laughs>